I played this video again because this is the message that God gave me actually a while back, and this is the scripture that God gave me whenever we found out we could not go to Haiti. And here it is, Acts chapter 16, verses 6 through 10. Next, Paul and Silas traveled through the area of Phrygia and Galatia because the Holy Spirit had prevented them from preaching the word in the province of Asia at that time. Later, Paul goes back and preaches, but at that time, for whatever reason, the Holy Spirit would not let him go into Asia. This is the verse that God gave me. For whatever reason, we could not go to Haiti this year, even though we've been uh, several times before. Then coming to the borders of Mysia, they headed north for the province of Bithynia, but again, the spirit of Jesus did not allow them to go there. So instead, they went on through Mysia to the seaport of Troas. That night, Paul had a vision. A man from Macedonia in northern Greece was standing there pleading with him, come over to Macedonia and help us. So we decided to leave for Macedonia at once, having concluded that God was calling us to preach the good news there. Most of you know that since 2010, when the earthquake hit, we've gone to Haiti. Um, Every year when when I get back, um, I immediately get on Praying Pelican's website and I register for the next year. The second year we were there in in 2011, we were the first group that ever registered there. They didn't even have the website up and running. So we registered in Port-au-Prince for the next year. They said, y'all are the first group to ever do that. I thought that was pretty cool. We are one of the few groups that keeps going back. In fact, they talked about this at the the, uh, conference, um, Without Borders conference, that we're one of the few churches that continues to pour our hearts and lives into Haiti. And they appreciate that. And I have friends there um, on my Mondo is the, is the, he's a Haitian. He lives there and he is the coordinator for Praying Pelican. We call each other brother. We're not, we're not just friends. We're brothers in Christ. And, and that's how we address one another all the time. So for 359 days, we thought we were going to Haiti. And then on July 10th, um, we realized there was a problem. In fact, I, that was a Sunday morning. I'm communicating with Armando. He's trapped in the city of Port-au-Prince. There are thugs that are burning tires that are, that are having um, these outposts where you would have to pay a tax to get through the road. There were groups that could not get to the airport. And so I said, Armando, dude, I'm trusting you. I said, you know our group. If you say it's safe, I'm coming regardless of what anybody else says, but I'm gonna trust you because you're our eyes and ears there in Port-au-Prince. And Armando Facebooks me back and he says, dude, you cannot come. He said, I cannot risk my brother and, and, and your, your church. I cannot risk your life and it's dangerous right now. So I said, okay, we can't go. So, uh, for two days, we didn't know if we were going anywhere. And, and so, uh, then I talked to praying Pelican and they said, we want you to consider Alaska, the Bahamas, Belize in that order, because they had staff in those places. They also had needs in those places where we could just slip in and, and, and do our mission trip. And so, um, so being very spiritual, since I have uh, very little time to make up this decision, I said, Lord, wherever we get 15 flights, because we had 15 on the group, wherever we get 15 seats, I believe that's where you're directing us to go. So I called a travel agent. I said, see if we can get this. She, because we had, we had booked on American Airlines, so we had to fly American Airlines. We had to see if there were even seats. Alaska, zero seats. The Bahamas, zero seats. We would have had to change the dates, which kind of defeated the purpose. And then, lo and behold, there are 15 seats to Belize. And so I said, thank you, Lord. I got on Facebook, and I said, Belize it is. And I told all of you we were headed to Belize. Now, we had no idea where we were going, and so here is a map of Belize. All right, so right up here is Belize City. That's where you fly into when you, when you go to Belize. We went to a little place up here. Now, Orange Walk is the closest town, and it's a, it's a fairly good-sized town, probably about the size of, of Palestine. But where we served was a village right up here, about 15 minutes away from Orange Walk. It's a village. They don't call it a town because it's not a town. It's a village called San Lazaro. We had no idea what we were doing there. We had no idea where it was. Um, But I'm just going to tell you, if you want an adventure in life, then follow Jesus. 
Because you think for 359 days you're going to Haiti, you think for two days you're going nowhere, and then all of a sudden you're going to Belize. And, and it, was, it was awesome. It was a great trip. Um, and so, so here's what I want you to understand today. We in America have a very easy life. And in fact, I saw a book a few years ago. I hadn't read the whole book, just read excerpts, but the title stuck with me, and I wanted to show you the picture of this, this book. It's called Rich, Free, and Miserable, The Failure of Success in America. And so the guy, uh, it, here's how it's described. It's a searing indictment of American life. It's by a guy named John Brueggemann, and here's what he says. He says, why, he asks this question, why, when we have so much are we so miserable? Do our li- why do our lives like satisfaction? Why do they like fulfillment? Why do we like purpose? And then he answers his own question. And he says, in our relentless pursuit of more, we're destroying our souls and we're destroying the relationships of those closest to us. Then he starts off and he talks about Mount Everest. And I've always kind of been fascinated with Mount Everest. He says, climbing Mount Everest has no social benefit in the world. It doesn't help anybody, it doesn't save any lives, it doesn't make the world a better place. It's a 100% purely ego-driven activity. But even though it doesn't help anyone, people will spend thousands and thousands of dollars and lots of time to go and do that. In fact, I looked it up. If you want to go this year or in the next calendar year, the average cost to climb Mount Everest is somewhere between $40,000 and $60,000. That is, is just the basic. You can go up to 115000 if you know you want your own little latte every morning or whatever. You can, you can actually have that, but for one hundred and fifteen grand, And it's going to take you a minimum of 60 days from the moment you get on a plane in Dallas-Fort Worth and you fly across the ocean until you are starting back. It's going to take you a minimum of 60 days because you have to fly over. You have to go to the base camp. You have to get acclimated there at the base camp. You walk around for a few days. You go up to base camp two. You come back to base camp one. You stay there a few days. Then you go up to base camp two. Then you go up to base camp three. You do all of this stuff, it's going to take you at least 60 days. That doesn't count all of the getting in shape you have to do ahead of time. Why in the world would people do this if it's purely ego-driven? And then he says, one out of every 10 people who attempt to climb Mount Everest die, and they leave your body on the mountain because it is too much trouble to get you down. Not making this up. One guy was actually frozen. He was frozen for 60 to 70 years before they even found him. He tells the story of a guy named David Sharp. David Sharp, on May 16th, 2006, he was climbing Mount Everest. Now, David made a critical mistake. One of the critical mistakes is he'd been one time, and this time he went without an outfitter. No help whatsoever. This is really insane because you need oxygen above a certain level. Very few people can summit without oxygen. You need, you need help. But, but he goes by himself. He gets to a cave that is, is one of the last protected places before you get to the summit of Mount Everest. And he injures himself so badly that he's going to die. Now, the sad thing is 40 different people, four zero, saw him, acknowledged, you're going to die. And they kept right on going up the summit. They left him there to die by himself. But they went up and they said, I've climbed Mount Everest. But you left a guy to die. Yeah, but I climbed Mount Everest. And so Brueggemann calls this the Everest Syndrome. When all I care about is me, I am the center of the universe. Everything is about me. (laughs) Everything's about my retirement, my goals, my plans, my wealth, and we're missing people. We're walking by people who are on the side of the road and they're dying and we don't care. 
because my life is about me. Sounds an awful lot like Jesus' story of the Good Samaritan. This, this, isn't, this isn't loving neighbors as yourself because you don't care, you don't give a rip about your neighbors. This is the Everest Syndrome, and this is why so many people in America are rich and miserable, rich, free, and miserable. Now, God didn't make us for this. According to Jesus, there's two reasons you are on this planet, and here they are. Number one, you, you were created. You're alive to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The second reason you're alive is to love people, love your neighbor as yourself. So Jesus said, when you boil life down, there's two things. You need to learn to love God in this lifetime, and you need to practice loving other people. Because he says, if you miss those two things, guess what? You just wasted your life. And I read you some scripture from Philippians chapter two where it says, there's gonna be a day you're gonna bow and when you bow before Jesus, do you really want him to say, you wasted your life on you? Or do you want him to say, you were a perfect picture of someone who loved me, God, and loved your neighbor as yourself. That's, that's, what, that's what we're trying to get to. Here's how Jesus said it in Mark chapter eight, verse 35. If you insist on saving your life, you will lose it. And I love how the, the Living Bible says this next part. Only those who throw away their lives for my sake and for the sake of the good news, the gospel, will ever know what it means to really live. When is the last time you did something that can be, sitter, can be considered throwing your life, your, your money, your time away for the kingdom of God? If you can't think of one, it's been too long. And you're not pleasing your heavenly father. Until you learn to give your life away for God's purpose and plan for your life, you won't even know what living is, really living is. See, what God is trying to tell us is what psychiatrists figured out on their own. Significance doesn't come from status. It doesn't come from sex. It doesn't come from salary. Significance in life comes from serving other people. It comes from service. Only in giving your life away to something greater than yourself will you ever experience true, real life the way God wanted you. Then you won't be rich, free, and miserable. Now, I know some of you are going, I'm not rich as is. Well, I was sitting there one morning, I don't even remember what one morning it was, in Belize, before everybody else is up, and this young man comes walking up, and I'm talking to him. He's probably 30, 32 years old, and we're talking about uh, what he does for a living. And so I just started asking him about the business climate in Belize, because I loved Belize. It's a great, used to be a British colony, and so the roads are good. And I said, dude, tell me about it. And he said, well, in Belize, a good, good salary is $250 a week. So $1,000 a month is a good salary. I kind of think most of you live on more than that. So don't tell me you're not rich compared to people in Belize. And then a good salary in Haiti might, might be $100 a month. I said a week in the early service. That's not even true. These people grind their own corn. Actually, they shuck their corn. They take it down uh, into the city to have it processed, and then they bring it back and they sell it. Takes them at least 30 to 45 minutes to walk down to the city to sell it, and they're gone all day. Their children don't even see them from sunup until after dark at night. Their kids are just running free all ages, from, from the smallest and, until they're teenagers, till they're old enough to go earn their buck or two a day. So don't tell me you're not rich. Don't you tell me that. Now, here's the deal. Everybody is loved by God. Every person is loved by God, created by God but not everybody is in the family of God. And, and let me tell you why this is a big deal. The Bible says that we become a child of God 
through faith in Jesus Christ. And it actually uses two metaphors. So like in a physical family, there's only two ways you can get into a physical family, be born into it or be adopted into it. The Bible uses both of those metaphors to describe being saved from your sins. You're born again, Jesus said, and you're adopted into God's family. The moment you are adopted into God's family, you, you are inducted into his mission for your life. It's no longer about your life. And here's what Jesus said in his high priestly prayer. John chapter 17, we call this the high priestly prayer. Jesus is actually praying here. This is the Lord's prayer, not the one, our father who art in heaven. That's a model prayer. This is Jesus praying and listen to what he says. In the same way that you gave me a mission in the world, I give them a mission in the world. Now Jesus is praying to God the father and I don't think he's saying these things for God's benefit. God already knew this. I don't think Jesus was saying it for his own benefit. The reason he prayed out loud, the reason it was written down was for your benefit and mine to understand why Jesus said, God, you gave me a mission. I completed that mission. On the cross, he said, it is finished. What was finished? His mission from God. He says, I give that same mission to everyone who believes in me. So what is the mission? Here's your mission. Do what Jesus did. Do what Jesus did. Well, where am I to do my mission? (laughs) Wherever you are. See, here's what the scripture says. You're supposed to do, it's a personal thing. You're supposed to do Jesus' mission personally, locally, and globally, all three. And and here's what I want you to carry out of here. Once I know, I must go. Say that. Once I know, I must go. Once you know what? Your mission. My mission is is given to me, your mission, if you're a Christ follower, is given to you. Instead of spending all your time and energy on your personal Mount Everest, you really need to be focusing on the mission of Jesus Christ. Now, in the Old Testament, God was talking to Isaiah, and and it looked like the children of Israel were done. It looked like the nation was was not going to happen anymore. It was going to go away. And here's what he says to him in Isaiah 49, 6. Isaiah says, now the Lord says to me, it isn't enough for you to be merely my servant. You must do more than lead back survivors from the tribes of Israel. I have placed you here as a light for other nations. You, I want to ask you, who is the you in this verse? Don't answer that yet. You must take my saving power to everyone who is on earth. Who is the you? You is the you. That's not good English, but it's good theology, right, Casey? You is the you in this verse. You are to take his saving light to the nations. And, and you're going to say, wow, that's a big mission. And then you're going to think about it and go, no, that's an impossible mission. Yes, it is in your power, but you're not supposed to do it in your power. It's kind of like when John F. Kennedy stood in 1963, the year before I was born. Makes me almost 54. John's already 54. I never let him forget that. He's older than me. He stood at Rice University in 1963 and he said, America, we're going to go to the moon by the end of the decade. The problem was nobody knew how to go to the moon. The science hadn't been made up. The math, we didn't know. If you've ever seen the movie Hidden Figures, you understand. We did not know how to do it. But he said, America, end of the decade, we're going to the moon. Here's what I want you to understand. Never confuse the decision-making phase with the problem-solving phase. See, they, they spent the next several years solving the problems, but they made the decision to go first. See, if you, if you try to solve all the problems before you make decisions, you'll never make decisions. It's like saying, I'm going to solve all the problems of my marriage before I ever get married. Any of you have marriage all figured out before you got married? It's like saying, I'm going to solve all the problems of raising children before I ever have kids. How many of you wrote books on raising children before you had children? We couldn't begin to possibly solve the problems of going to Belize until we made the decision to go to Belize on July 10th. 
We didn't get the tickets for Belize. We didn't purchase the tickets until Thursday, the day before, we're, Thursday afternoon. We're supposed to leave the next morning at 11.15. That's when we finally had that done. All the rest of the stuff, we, we, we just didn't. See, we'd sent $4,000 to Haiti. It's called ministry money to, to repair homes. And so I told Praying Pelican, we don't even have money to do any ministry in Belize. They said, that's okay. That's okay, just come on. We'll put you to work. And, and our church, I'm not making this up, our church has the reputation, whatever you need done, New Life will do it. So we, we took machetes and we cleaned up the side of the road and we cleaned up the, the bus stop and, and we worked hard. And, and, and I, it blessed my heart that we're known as a group. If you have work to do, this group doesn't think anything is below them. And I said, praise God. That's the type of church I want to be. Don't ever confuse the decision-making phase with the problem-solving phase. See, here's a promise of Jesus. If you'll say, Jesus, I'll go wherever you lead me, I'll do whatever you tell me to do, here's the promise that Jesus gives in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere, in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. See, when we give away clothing and food in a couple of weeks, that's working in Jerusalem. Our Palestine is Jerusalem. When we have Celebrate Recovery, when we have the landing, which is CR for teenagers, when we have the military ministry, when we, when we participate with the uh, Christian Motorcycle Association, that's... That's serving people in Palestine, our Jerusalem. And this next year, we intend to go back to Belize and we intend to go to Haiti. And I hadn't even told the board about this, but I've talked to a guy from Houston who works with Praying Pelican and they haven't even, there are people in Houston whose homes have still not been repaired from Hurricane Harvey. So I'd like to take three mission trips next year. And I'd like for you to pray about which one or all three you're supposed to go on. Don't, up front, say, God, whatever you want me to do, I'm going to do. Don't say you got to solve all the problems before you answer that question. It's a yes or no question. God, did you call me to go to Houston next year? God, did you call me to go to Belize next year? God, did you call me to go to Haiti next year? That's a yes or no question. You don't solve the problems before you answer that question. Or here's one for you. God, are you calling me to do all three next year? Oh, but that's a lot of money. You don't even know how much money it is. Like God doesn't know how much money it is. You answer that question first. Here's what Jesus said in Matthew 24, 14. And the good news about the kingdom will be pre preached throughout the world so that all nations will hear it and then the end will come. The end of the world isn't going to happen until everybody who is supposed to hear about Jesus and respond to that message hears. And the moment that person, wherever they are in the world does, we're out of here. It's over. The beginning of the, the end of the world begins. Christians are taken. We're done at that point. But here, here's the promise of Jesus, of God in the Old Testament. He's actually talking to Isaiah here. The Lord of heaven's armies has sworn this oath. It will happen as I have planned. It will be as I have decided. God's saying, I will bet my reputation on it. I'll bet my character on it. What I have said will happen. Now, from Isaiah all the way to the end of the Bible, we're going to go to Revelation because John gets to see a vision of what it looks like when the last person has accepted Christ and God's whole family is in heaven. He describes it in Revelation 5 verse 9. And they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals because you were slain and with your blood you've purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. They're talking about Jesus. They're singing to Jesus. Uh, how many tribes are going to be there? Every tribe, every language, every people, every nation. 
Two chapters later in in chapter seven, verse nine, he says this. After this, I saw a vast crowd too great to count from every nation and tribe and people and language standing in front of the throne and before the lamb. They were clothed in white robes and held palm branches in their hands. I cannot wait to be part of this number that can't even be numbered and have my palm branch and have my white robe and be singing to my resurrected savior. There is nothing that will compare to that. Now, these four categories, nations, tribes, people, language, God used somebody to reach them, somebody like you and me. Every church that's ever been started over the last 2,000 years had been started by ordinary people who serve an extraordinary God. So are you going to accept your mission? Here's the two questions. Will I fulfill my mes- mission? This is what I want you to understand. I want you to ask yourself this question. Question, 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 mission, question. Will I fulfill my mission? What's your mission? Do what Jesus did, where, wherever you are. See, when God told the disciples 2,000 years ago to take this message to the ends of the earth, it was physically impossible for them to do that. They couldn't go to Australia. They didn't even know there was an Australia. They couldn't go to North or South America. They didn't even know those things existed. Why couldn't they go? There weren't boats big enough to go there. It was impossible, but they were supposed to plant their seed where they were, and in God's hands, this incredible wildfire of salvations has spread literally around the globe to our day. There's people everywhere that know about Christ. There's still not a lot of people who don't, but he spread this all over, starting with this very small beginning in Jerusalem. That's where the church started. Will you fulfill your mission? Um, Today, we have planes. We flew to Belize in three hours. That's the amazing thing. Belize is actually a little lower on the, on the, Longitude and latitude, I don't remember which is which. Anyway, it doesn't matter. It's a little bit lower than Haiti. But you have to fly to Miami or Florida, either Fort Lauderdale or Miami, and then fly to Haiti, so it takes all day to get to Haiti. took us three hours to get to Belize. You can sit in your home today on the Internet and talk to somebody in an unreached people group around the world because technology exists today that didn't exist 25 years ago. You can do your part. So will I fulfill my mission, whether you do it in your PJs in front of the internet or whether you get on a plane and go to Haiti or Belize with us? Will you fulfill your mission? Will you do what Jesus did? Second question, will, will I be a part of history? And this is a capital H. And just so you get the point, I separated the two words. History is his story. It's all about Jesus. Are you, gonna, are you really going to stand before Jesus and say, look at my portfolio, look at my house, look at my cars, look at how long I was in this job while I ignored people who were going to hell? I don't think that's what you want to say. Do you think God brought you to this church to watch his story or to participate in his story? I'm going to ask it again and I want you to answer Do you think God brought you here to watch his story, history, or to make his story, history? There's about five of us. There were four in the first service, so nine of us are going to make history. The rest of y'all, I don't know what y'all are going to do. I read a devotional by Max Licato, and and this is how we're going to finish up today. Here's what he said. God does uncommon things through common deeds or common people. And then he says, he tells this story of, of Hurricane Katrina. 
As the waters rose, there was a dad who had to swim out the window with his two children on his back, and he swam to the tallest building he could find, climbs up on top, and everybody else in the neighborhood, this was the tallest building, so people are swimming from everywhere. They climb up on the building. They're sitting there. After an hour sitting on top of the building, he looks down, and he goes, hey, everybody, this is a church. Pats the roof, and he says, we're on holy ground. And then somebody else on the roof said, my grandparents, my granddad and my grandmother helped physically build this church. A question for you. Did grandma and grandpa think that that church would one day be used to save their grandchildren from a flood? I don't think so. I think they thought, you know, my grandkids may need to come to Christ and let's build a church and maybe this church can reach them spiritually. They never in, once imagined that God would use that to save them physically. See, you just never know what God's gonna do with your small act of obedience. What difference can your little thing make, your little act of obedience make? Well, Jesus tells us, God tells us this in Zechariah. He says, do not despise small beginnings, for the Lord rejoices to see the work. 17 years ago, Janie and I, actually 16 years ago this spring, Janie and I were sitting at Lower Lake and we were praying about whether we're supposed to start this church. And something she said to me, I, I wrote down, she said, I don't want to look back in 20 years and wonder what would have happened if we don't start this church. So the first, first, we actually started on Saturday night, we had 22 people. The next week we had 16 and I was like, oh dude, we're going the wrong direction. We're going to, we're going to close in a month. And, and I, wanted, I want to give you a quick journey of, of where new life has come from. And I'll make a point about that. Let me show you some pictures. The very first place we met was um, what is now Verizon. Um, Y'all remember it was Cook's Automotive. If you've been here a long time, it was, a, it was an auto shop. And then it was Rounders Pizza. And then it was Tammy's 57 Heaven. So we actually met in there for six months free. And we had the coolest steeple in town. We had a 57 Chevy. And that's what we used to tell people. Our, our steeple is a Chevy. That was, that's where we met for six months. Then we moved over to, go ahead, Landmark Academy. So it's empty now. Landmark's gone out of business. But back in the day, we met in one side uh, in a computer shop and then next door we rented and that's where we had our children's area. Then we went downtown and we were in the old First Baptist building. This was the education building. We actually met on the third floor and so we said, if you can find us and if you can walk the steps, you can worship with us. Um, it, it was quite an exercise. Actually, one time we carried a, an 80-year-old woman up the stairs because she wanted to worship with us, three flights of stairs. Next, then by the grace of God, we were able to purchase this building uh, in two acres in 2007. Now, there was lots of problems. Next one. We had to replace several panels, and isn't that, isn't that attractive? That is just a beautiful looking building right there. Next one. This was the boys' bathroom. Way up there it, with the nursery is now, this is what the boys' bathroom is. Isn't that beautiful? Next, girls. Oh, ladies, we're going to paint one day just for, for nostalgia. We're going to paint the women's bathroom this color. Yes, next. So this is what it looked like when we came in. It was still decorated as a skating rink. All right, Next. This is looking back. So that was the wall. So where you walk up the ramp there in the children's area, that's where the wall was. So all of the games and everything, you can see the skates back there. Those were some nasty, we didn't even keep the skates. They were, they were horrible. But they had pool tables, all kinds of stuff up there and had skates and all that stuff. This is what it looked like when we bought it. Next. So this is from the, from the front, looking this way. We'd taken down the wall. We took out all of the stuff and all that wood that's sitting up there that was on the sides because children cannot control themselves when they skate and it was bent, dent, denting the, the metal walls and so they put wood up. We took that wood down. Next. 
So that's my, actually my son, Caleb, when he was uh, 12 or so, he's standing on top of the pool table and there were so many leaks in the roof that we had to knock down all of the drop ceiling and take out all of the insulation because it stunk in here. Piles and piles. They used to, they, my kids would play hide and go seek behind the piles of stuff. You, if you're standing at one end looking down that you could not see my children because it was piled up so much. Next. So this is what we did. Um, this is from the front looking back. We were about to hang 400 sheets of sheetrock. Didn't have the manpower, didn't have the money to do it. The volunteer Christian builders came and stayed for two weeks and hung 200, uh, 400 sheets of sheetrock, did all the tape in bed um, for free. Next. So this is, if you were standing here looking back, it's those double doors there that's uh, on the right side over there, that's the crying baby's room and then the office over there. Next. So in 2010, we moved in here in 2008, 2010, the earthquake happens in Haiti and we, we felt like we were called to go. In the first couple of years, um, we fly into Port-au-Prince, which is right here, and we worked out on this little uh, part of the peninsula in, in a place called Mariani. Next picture. So the first year we get to Mariani, this is what it looks like. We could not go to church with the church at Mariani because their building had been destroyed and we would have, 12 of us would have overwhelmed their, their church service. They would drag the speakers out into the street and they would have church, but they were afraid that we would kind of be a distraction from their first service. So we didn't get to do anything. We laid the foundation for this church, actually school on the first floor, church on the second and third floor. Next. So this is where standing, the roof that we're standing on, that's the roof of the, of the school. They were able to use the school. We, we literally poured the concrete the next morning. They were having class in there. Next picture. So this is the balcony of the church. So we just keep, every year we kept going back, kept going back. We keep building and keep moving cinder blocks. We move so many cinder blocks. Next. So this is the church when it's almost finished, looking from the back to the front. And then I want you to see this. By 2016, from no foundation, meeting in the streets, the place is packed. Don't you ever despise small beginnings because the Lord rejoices to see the work begin. So this year, next. Oh, <laughs> I forgot to put that in there. So that was, that's all Mondo laughing. <laughs> so they won't even jump in there. They don't like swimming. Uh, our friends in, in Haiti, uh, they, I said, why won't you swim? And he said, because it's over my head um, and I'll drown. He said, I'll sink like a rock. So I, this was, this is Basin Bleu is what it's called in, in French and Creole. It means blue basin. And so for our fun day, when we go to Jacques Mel, Hannah and I actually went and went all over the country, prayed about where we were supposed to go. And we decided Jacques Mel. So for our fun day, we actually go to this, this waterfall. It is spectacular in the middle of the country, and, and I just showed you that because I could. It really doesn't have any point. Go ahead. So then we go to Jock Mel, and this is our group last year. We climbed up. I think Aiden called us Mountain Climbers for Life or something like that. We, we climb up and, and just, just had some fun and some incredible fellowship, and we love Haiti, and we're going back to Haiti, and we are called to go to Haiti. Some of you are called to go with us. Then, next... Then we're called this year to go to Belize. Didn't know why. Prayed about why. God, why are you doing this? We want to go to Haiti. We, we miss Pastor Jude. We miss Jock Mel. Those children, I can see their faces. I actually watched the video and, and got a little teary-eyed that we weren't going to get to see those kids again this year. For some reason, God called us to Belize, and we had no idea why, and we're praying about it. So next. So on Monday or Tuesday, on Monday, on Monday, we drive from San Lazaro, that's the village we're in, to this village called San Jose. And the pastor is sharing. So 
uh, Pastora, his wife actually preaches and pastors the church and he is planting this church 30 minutes away. And so we go and we sit and, and we look at it and we're like, that's, that's a church. That's where they meet. So he starts sharing his testimony and, and they're up to 17 members. I mean, they're pumped, 17 members. Started from nothing over a course of two years. And then look over here. See this slab over here? Well, actually, first, see this little wire? They pay the next door neighbor, I don't even remember what he said, how much a month they, they pay for electricity. They don't have a band. They just have a few lights. They usually meet at night there because it's too hot during the daytime. So they've got lights, no music whatsoever. He's just teaching. So this, this slab over here is not even acceptable to build a building. They're about to pour some, some concrete as soon as they get the money for that, and they're going to start building. And Gary said it, and a couple other people said it. When, when we realized what was going on here, we thought, we're supposed to be the church that builds that church. Made our hearts start beating a little bit quicker. Because, you know, we had a blast, and we'll probably stay in San Lazaro. We, we, we love that church and the preaching. The, we had a great time there. The food, oh, my gosh, you will gain weight in Belize, I'm telling you. But my heart beat faster when I saw this. And so the, after we talked and they shared their testimony, we walked over onto that other slab, and, and they asked me to pray. And so we got around uh, Pastor and Pastora Mogel, and, and we laid hands on them, and I started praying. And, and when I prayed, just felt like God was telling me, God, destroy the strongholds of the enemy that are set up in this place. The weapons that we warfare with, they're not of this world. They're divine for the demolishing of strongholds, spiritual strongholds. I just prayed, and, amen. We got on the bus, went back to San Lazaro. Later, one of, the, uh, one of the translators came up to me, and she said, what you don't know is that San Jose, back in the day, was, a, was known for witchcraft, was known for dabbling in the occult. She said, so when you prayed that God would destroy strongholds, you were doing battle on behalf of this church. And I went, God's calling us to go build this church. I want to be the church that storms the gates of hell. Now, we're not stupid. If, if somebody in Haiti says, don't come to Haiti, we're not going to go. But if God says, go build a church where there's been a stronghold of demonic activity, I want to be that guy that goes. Come hell or high water, I'm going to tell somebody about Jesus in this place. And even if I don't get to tell them, I'm going to build a church that maybe someday God uses to save somebody physically when a hurricane comes through. Or maybe God uses to save them eternally through the message that's being proclaimed. Now, I'm going to tell you, some of you are called to go to Belize. Is that all of them? Did I finish them? I don't even know. Oh, ha! This is cheesy, but you'll remember it. That's what a telephone looked like in my day. And, and here's the point. This is your call. Once you know, you must go. God's calling, will you answer? And I'm going to tell you, Haiti is much tougher physically than Belize. Belize, it was flat, hot, humid. Actually, the, the, the temperature wasn't as hot as here, but humid like crazy. There's electricity, there's running water. You don't know that you're always going to have that in Haiti. But some of you are called to go to Haiti. We will not turn our backs on Haiti just because it's more convenient to go to Belize. 
Some of you are called to go to Belize. Some of you are called to go to Haiti. Some of you are called to go to Houston. I, I hadn't even talked to the guy yet to coordinate that trip, but I believe that God wants us to go. How hard is that to go three hours away? Now, Christianity started in the shadow of the Roman Empire when it was large and in charge. But I ask you, which one has had the bigger impact on the world? Where are the Romans who crucified Jesus? Where are these big uh, temples in Corinth that, that towered over the, the infant church? Because see, it was illegal for churches to even own property back then. Are people still sacrificing to Zeus? No, but 2,000 years later, we're still singing to Jesus Christ. Don't despise small beginnings. If you ever wonder whether your little bit, whatever your little act of obedience is, can make a difference, remember this. Against a towering giant, a little pebble from a brook kind of looks pathetic, but God used that pebble to topple Goliath. In God's hands, a little seed becomes a sheltering tree. And if you're rich and miserable and free and you want purpose, here's a line from Max Licato's book, Cure for the Common Life, and I, I love this. God cures the common life by giving no common life and offering no common gifts. If you need purpose, get in on what Jesus Christ has to offer. Don't you dare despise small beginnings because the Lord loves to see it begin. Now, here's what I want you to do. I want you to bow your heads, and I'm going to ask you, you don't have to answer this today, but in the next few weeks, I want you to pray to God. God, am I supposed to go to Houston next year? Am I supposed to go to Belize next year? Am I supposed to go to Haiti? Or God, am I supposed to go to all three? I'm doing all three. Father, May we never be a church who rests on what we've done in the past. But may we build on that to bring glory and honor to your name in the future. And God, if you want to use us to build this church in San Jose, if you want to use us to, to repair homes in Jacmel or homes in Houston, would you put a burden on our hearts that we cannot deny so that next year we have more people from New Life serving outside of Palestine than we ever have before. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.